We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. A favorite among my circle of crime writer friends, today I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast Dennis Tafoya, author of the novels Dope Thief, Wolves of Fairmount Park, and The Poor Boy's Game. Dennis Tafoya's work has not only been optioned for film and television, but his short stories have appeared in magazines and anthologies, including Philadelphia Noir and Best American Mystery Stories. Dennis, I want to thank you so much for being here. It's nice to meet you after interacting on social media, and I really value your insights on the genre. So how are you doing, and how is spring treating you so far? Uh, pretty good, uh, actually. Um, getting ready to do some traveling to the Southwest, as we said before, and uh, uh, I really appreciate you having me on the show. I loved it. i you know, a big fan, and... Uh, you know, Jed Ayers and uh, Jordan Harper are friends of mine. And uh, so it was like fun to watch them. They both have this incredible encyclopedic knowledge yes. of, of film that uh, is kind of daunting. But um, but it's it's cool to be here and talk about something that I'm fascinated by. Yes, absolutely. No, I'm so glad that you are here. I remember, I think, well, we probably interacted before that. But I remember once I was watching Jordan do a noir at the bar. And it was him and oh. Nikki Dolson and Megan Abbott. And you were hosting. And so that yeah, was really sure. fun. Well, yeah. Do you still do those? Yeah. Uh, it was great during the, the dark days of the yes. pandemic. I, I hosted like five or six of those. Oh, and cool. it was really nice Yeah, to feel, to be able to let people, you know, to help people keep, stay connected and get out there and get their work out. So, uh, yeah, and they're all just incredibly talented. It's nice to have that bunch of friends. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what have you been up to lately? Are you working on anything you'd like to give us a sneak preview of? I know you also mentioned you're traveling. So what's new with you? Uh, well, I'm, I'm uh, 
just about to send something. I'm jinxing myself talking about this, but uh, oh, about to send something. To. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been working on a collaboration with a crime writer, Paul Garth, Paul J. Garth. Paul's a, oh, yeah. a, a cool young guy from uh, from Omaha, and we've been working on something that we're about to send to my agent. Uh, and you know, that's been a lot of fun to sort of keep my my hand in with that. And then I've got uh, some short stories out there that'll you know I hope people will see over the summer. Oh, very cool. Sounds good. Yeah. yeah. Well, before we jump into the film discussion today, one question I love asking writers, particularly if they've never been on before, is about their process. Are you a daily writer? Do you write by hand, type? Do you do morning pages? What is your preferred approach? Uh, I, I typically write in, in the morning. Uh, I actually have an office now. I retired um, oh, cool. In December, from my my uh, day job, and uh, and so I have an office that I can go to, which is very nice to separate myself, you know, from yeah. from the house. And uh, uh, I, like I said, I typically most productive in the mornings. After about w- one or two, I have nothing to say. So <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a particular in that way. And I like to listen to music, you know, and sort of create that environment for myself. But um, uh, I'm not super disciplined at all. It's, no. uh, <laughs> that's okay. Music wise, <laughs> can you do lyrics or do you need like, you know, scores? I actually, yeah, I, I can listen to, to lyrics and it, wow. it kind of depends on the piece. A lot of stuff is emotional. I do listen to a lot of soundtracks, which are yeah. instrumental, you know, by their nature. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I have, a lot of the music I have these days, I have shazammed off of the closing credits of movies and television shows. Um, I that's love we- Shazam. It's the best. It yeah. is. It absolutely is. Mm-hmm. Uh, though half the time it's like, you know, it's not available because it was some music written specifically for, you know, for yeah. a movie or a television show. So you can't find it. But um, yeah, I, a lot of that kind of stuff. I, you know, like the a lot of uh, soundtrack people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when we were coming up with ideas to discuss for today's episode, I thought you crafted an especially good one, since it's not only one of my favorite genres, but it's also focused on the decade when I came of age and did most of my important, very foundational film viewing. So I'm talking, of course, about our theme of overlooked crime movies of the 1990s. You sent me a very long, very cool list of titles to choose from. And I like the quartet we selected very much because they're very different films, but there are some overlapping themes. We selected Miami Blues, After Dark, My Sweet, both from 1990, 1994, Shallow Grave, and Hard Eight, aka Sydney, which came out a year later. We'll go deeper into the movies one by one in just a moment. But before we do that, I would love to know as a crime author and crime film and fiction aficionado, what is it about this decade's forays into the genre, you think, that really set it apart? Um, it's funny. First thing I say really is that the '90s were an incredible time for crime movies. Yes. I was kind of looking at that and wondering if it was just seen that way. So I looked at 1980s crime films and 2000s crime films, and really, so so much. And it, a lot of mainstream stuff came out. You know, we've got *L.A. Yeah. Confidential* and *Heat* and *Pulp Fiction* and *Fargo* and a zillion mm-hmm. other great things from you know from A-list directors yeah. um, doing crime. And then you know, 
either by extension or, you know, whatever the process is, a lot of fantastic independent crime. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, like we'd said, well beyond, you know, this four, you had a, a bunch of films that I still love and still go back yeah. to. And I don't know if that that reflects something about the ability to raise money in the 90s as opposed to now. So. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's no shortage of those little films, but they're really like no budget films that tend to come out now. Um, you know, it's it's tough, I think, to find that kind of, you know, lower budget, but not no budget um, money, I think, um, to get films made. It must be it must be increasingly difficult. Um, and certainly yeah. the, the top grocers now are all, you know, tentpole movies. They're all giant, mm-hmm. yep. um, giant films that cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And nobody's doing that for crime much. You know? No. Yeah, it's all existing IP and remakes of movies that they're turning into TV shows. And like everything <laughs> is eight episodes. And it's like, you don't need eight episodes to tell the story of Flashdance or whatever they're going to do next. <laughs> yeah, right. But um, yeah. yeah, I'm with you. I love these 90s movies because you did have like the mid-budget film you had um a-list stars in crime movies which doesn't really happen anymore and then you had these great independents like even stuff like red rock west which i talked uh, to bill boyle about recently for our nicholas cage episode yeah so people were taking more chances in the 90s and i missed that yeah 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 absolutely yeah it was um you know, Laws of Gravity, the great little film, The Underneath, yeah. that's pretty much entirely forgotten and I think kind of repudiated by Steven Soderbergh. But I, yeah. I you know, I really enjoyed that. And and a lot of great English films like Young Poisoner's Handbook. Mm-hmm. You know, so you've got these little tiny films. City of Industry is a real favorite of mine. I watch that every couple of years. I know there's so many. And then around the world, lots of crime films too. Also, you had really exciting stuff going on with um, experiments and genre, like some Western hybrids and yeah, yeah. Some science fiction crime, lots of different avenues we could have gone down. So this is really fun. But um, jumping into our films, we have two movies from 1990, both of which feel like hybrid 80s and 90s movies in some respects. So I think it's a good way to kick things off. Chronologically, sure. the first title released is writer-director George Armitage's uh, adaptation of the titular Charles Williford novel, Miami Blues, which was the first Williford to introduce the character Hoke Mosley. Here, the Miami police sergeant is played by the right stuff's Fred Ward. And while he is terrific, he is easily upstaged by the energetic, loose cannon, charismatic as all get out scene stealing performance of Alec Baldwin, who dominates blues as a violent sociopathic ex-con dubbed Junior, who arrives in Miami from California, fresh from prison under an assumed name, becoming involved with Jennifer Jason Lee's bubbly yet dim college student slash prostitute. Baldwin and Lee decide to skip right to the happily ever after, but he can't leave his violent criminal tendencies behind. And Ward's Hoke is on the case. It is a sunshine and pastel sherbet colored bright neo-noir that's very fun to watch. So I would love to hear your thoughts on Miami Blues. Uh, yeah, so this is um, a Charles Wilford um, adaptation. And right off the bat, I would say, I think of the films we're talking about, it's the one that struggles most with tone. Um, yeah. I think, and even at the time, 
you know, I think reviewers kind of pointed that out. The Charles Williford is is tough, I think, to to some degree to, to adapt. Um, he, he had a very particular uh, approach to all of this. The Hope Mosley character is that uh, that whole um, you know South Florida Miami atmosphere. His his characters, you know, the, the Hope Mosley character is you know somebody at the edge of retirement and the. The novels actually follow him into retirement. He's an old white guy in a city that's changing fast. True. And a lot, yeah, and a lot of the uh his observations are, you know, about the changing racial, you know, outlook and makeup of, of um that area of Florida. Uh it's a it's they're funny to be sure, but the humor is difficult to translate because so much of it is just that flat, almost monotone. Um, uh. that it's delivered in. Um, and of course, you know, it, it's difficult when you know a novel well to just come to the novel, you know, to the, not the film version of it without sort of laying that on, you know, like the opening sequences mm-hmm. are in the book, but they're out of order and they they add a lot to it. I, I think what this, what this movie um, you say struggles with is uh, Alec Baldwin. He's so charismatic and so lovely, you know, that to look at. He's this kind of ferocious guy. He becomes the center of the film. He clearly ad libs dialogue, and um, and they try to find that, um, you know, the sort of comedic uh, tone, but at the same time, they humanize him. He's a straight up psychopath in the book, yeah. you know. <laughs> And uh, and in the movie, they you know they have those sort of tender moments with him and Jennifer Jason Leigh, who's so amazing uh, yeah. in it. And and so I think it, it it it's tough. And dark comedy is is you know tough to begin with. Um, the I, one of the ironic things I think about that is that um, uh, he made uh, Armitage went on to make um, uh, Gross Point Blank, which one of is my like favorite. Yeah. That's like the perfect exemplar, right, of the dark or black comedy yeah. um, where they it absolutely works, where he approaches it. And maybe because it was a script and, and not a book, I don't think um, he could no. just control all the elements in a way he wanted to. Uh, and that's got a once in a lot, ton of great performances. And you absolutely love Minnie Driver and and John Cusack and what they're doing It is just totally works really well. Yeah. This, I think, and I'd be curious to know what you think. I, I I think it's a little more uneven. I agree with you. I love Gross Point Blank. I actually think it's one of Dan Aykroyd's best performances. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like just a, a master class in dialogue delivery, but also oh, yeah. doing physically like uh, the scene where they're kind of dueling in the restaurant. He doesn't blink at all. I was like watching him very closely and he doesn't blink at all. And I was just wondering, you know, he's firing off so many lines of dialogue without blinking. And it's it's really cool to see Dan Aykroyd kind of firing on all of these uh, cylinders that he doesn't use very much, kind of a darker undercurrent that we might have seen flashes of in the 80s and things, but he kind of lets it rip there. And I love that. Cusack, Driver, it is, I think, perfectly, um, it walks that line of humor, but also it's bleak in places and it's dark and it's twisted, but it's so, so fun. One of my favorites to watch. This one is kind of all over the place. I watched it um, 
for the first time in ages, like about almost two years ago now, because it was the first movie, actually, my friend Travis Woods chose for our pandemic movie club to watch. He wrote a really great essay for Brightwall Dark Room about it. And then I'll be sure to link to when I put this up. And um, so we watched it. And when I watched it for that, I was kind of struck by how strange it was. But I kept thinking about it and wondering if they had played up the humor in places, would it have worked differently? Or if they went straight for that like psychopathic edge. So I do think it struggles, but there's just so much to it. It's so entertaining. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's something that like the Coen brothers do incredibly well. Yeah. I think that kind of tone that you see in Fargo would mm-hmm. would probably have served it where it's a little flatter, a little uh, deader so that the moments of violence and the moments of humor kind of stick up more, you know, or more, more yeah. obvious um and and maybe maybe work a little better you know things it's interesting like you see like um Nora Dunn the character of Elita Sanchez in the book is is um you know it's just it, very much not a cliche exactly but uh, it's somebody who's supposed to be like basically like a secretary who was promoted because she's Latina and mm-hmm. and then of course what what does work about the Williford books is uh, Hope Mosley very much goes at that character with that kind of prejudice, but then she, you know, she's actually incredibly competent yeah. and actually, but Nora Dunn is not that character at all. And so they're trying to find ways they've got her dressed up. She's glamorous. She's obviously very, very smart. And, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it, it struggles to sort of manhandle that stuff into the framework they've been given by the novel. You know? I agree with you. And one thing Travis pointed out in his essay and um, made me think about it too, is it's produced by Jonathan Demi, who yes. made something wild. And he's really good at kind of these sharp left-hand turn or as Travis calls these gear shift movies that sort of yes. just suddenly veer in different directions. And uh, this one kind of winks at you a little bit. And, um, right. you know, like the scene where uh, Hank Mosley goes over there and they have dinner together and it's like, you know, that seems a little sitcom-y. And then right after that, you have Alec Baldwin going over and like beating the hell out of him and stealing his <laughs> teeth. And it's, you know, like, right. what, where did this come from? Like, it just keeps making these sharp turns and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. I think the sequences where he is, he's stolen for the people who maybe haven't seen it in a while. He stole the police badge and he starts impersonating a cop. And one of my favorite moments is when uh, somebody tries to knock over a restaurant and he shoots him and then threatens to shoot after he already did that. And, um, you know, Baldwin is having a field day, I think. There. Yeah, he's having a blast. And, you know, he's just, it, Baldwin's a, a, a kind of a fascinating character to me. He did very little, I, I feel like he did very little of the um, lead, you know, traditional male lead roles you'd expect to somebody who's, you know, yeah. got that incredible force of personality. And he is very sort of classically handsome and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and he actually has really shined in a lot of, more ensemble pieces. He's like a the a fantastic character actor now, you know? Um, yeah. So I think when they, I can imagine, you know, getting on set with him and he just, he is so big a personality that it would sort of unbalance things to a certain degree. And how could you not run with that, you know? Yeah. And this was the same year as The Hunt for Red October, which yes. kind of like 
put them in a different stratosphere. But you brought up a good point with these ensemble pieces because then he made like Glengarry Glen Ross. And, right. you know, he's in a scene that I don't believe was in the play, if I remember right. I think they wrote that for the movie, perhaps. Um, but, you know, Baldwin is so good in that scene. It's by James Foley, who directs the next one we're going to talk about. So kind of tying it in there. But yeah, Baldwin was really seeking out interesting work, I think. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah, so like I said, it's 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 absolutely fun to watch. And, uh, you know, it was pretty well received at the time. You know, I think... Um, People appreciated they were ready for that. I think exactly because of what you were talking about, the Jonathan Demi and that, you know, sort of creating that space. I think they, they both came from uh, the Corman uh, factory, actually. Oh, uh, good point. Yeah, um, uh, Demi and, and uh, Armish both. Yeah. yeah, very cool. You can kind of see that holdover. They're going to entertain you and they're unafraid to do things that you might not expect or you might not like or make their heroes um, ugly or, um, you know, burst out with behavior that you wouldn't see. Like now we have to kind of softball everything or, you know, underhand uh, spoon feed and you're not going to get that in this movie at all. Yes. No. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the things I, I ran across in researching this too, was that Fred Ward actually optioned this so that he could play the psychopath. Um, I read that. Yeah. It would have been very, very different. Fred Ward is such a, he's such a trooper. You know, it's, you know, once again, he's not that lead actor typically. I think other than like Remo Williams, he hasn't, <laughs> he hasn't done a ton where he was, you know, like front and center in that way. Though the book is Hoke Mosley's book. The movie is not. It's not his character's movie, you know. No, um, it's Junior's. I was going to ask you, because this is part of a series I'm unfamiliar with Williford. Um, is this the best of the Hank Mosleys, or are there any other Williford books you would recommend to people? Oh, the whole Moko's, Mo, Hope Mosley um, uh, series is good. This is the first letter. New Hope for the Dead and Sideswipe. They're all, they're all like this and all, you know, they're all very funny and deal mostly with Hoke Mosley and uh, other characters like him, the sort of aging white population of Miami, totally misunderstanding everything they see. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they have these pronouncements that they make that are as likely to be wrong as they are to be right. You know, it's mm -hmm. not like he has any supernatural insight. You know, he's just an old dude who the world is changing. He doesn't get it, you know, and he just, he uh, has trouble with it. But um uh, it, they are very funny and very quick reads. They're very much that, um, you know, crime fiction of that era, you know, Elmore Leonard. Carl and, Hyacin, you know, the, all those guys. Yeah. yeah, exactly right. Yeah. I think it was the genre that Dave Barry called the South Florida wacko genre. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So much. fun. Yeah. Well, next up, we have a film that Roger Ebert put in his great movies list. Writing After Dark My Sweet is the movie that eluded audiences. It grossed less than $3 million, has been almost forgotten, and remains one of the purest and most uncompromising of modern film noir. It captures above all the lonely, exhausted lives of its characters. Based on the novel of the same name by Jim Thompson, which was adapted by director James Foley, along with Robert Redlin, who also produced After Dark My Sweet, stars Jason Patrick, 
as a troubled ex-boxer, drifter, and escapee from a mental hospital who falls in with sexy scheming widow Rachel Ward and gets involved with her kidnap for ransom plot, which is being masterminded, if you can call it that, by Bruce Dern, an affecting, emotional, desperate noir that I think plays even better the second time around. So what do you think about After Dark, My Sweet? Oh, it's a great film. Uh, yes. Loved it at the time and I've revisited it periodically. Um, it's based on a 1955 novel and Jim Thompson adaptations, of which there are more and more, is a whole kind of interesting area in and of itself. Um, uh, and I, this is a very faithful adaptation. They, they move around some of the parts and invent some dialogue, but it's it's pretty faithful um, to Thompson's novel. And, and it was written, the book was written in 55. Okay. And what I'm fascinated by, and this is something that fascinates me generally, is stylized language. Um, it's not naturalistic dialogue when you listen mm-hmm. to it. These are people who are talking like it's 1955, and they're they in a novel are. from 1955. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it it works somehow, it, I think, and um, somehow that um, kind of distance from actual life. It, somehow it all hangs together, even though the setting is very sort of naturalistic. And uh, I love that desert noir is generally something I absolutely love. You know, Bad day of black rock and uh, all those great films set there. And this is, it's uh, Indio and Mecca um, sort of, you know, struggling towns on the edge of the Coachella Valley. There's there. I don't think there's a flash of green in the entire movie. It's all, decaying and dead palm trees and grass. And, um, and I, it's, it's an absolutely perfect setting for that. And it feels um, very insulated from the real world in some ways. And um, it, it can be tough. Like I said, I think there are some great adaptations of, um, you know, some great adaptations of Jim Thompson that are very faithful, like Grifters is also pretty faithful mm-hmm. to the, um, and then ones that I think are great that really only, you know, sort of take general story ideas, um, okay. you know, from the uh, things, you know, um, uh, like The Getaway, the Sam Peckinpah oh, film, yeah. mm-hmm. Walter we, Hill, you know, that yeah. doesn't have a ton. I mean, it, you know, it's a sort of general idea mm-hmm. set up and everything is the same, but it does not hew to the the Thompson novel at all. So it, it's, I'm kind of fascinated by the fact that, like you said, that stilted English somehow p- plays really, really perfectly. When you listen to Jason Patrick's little crazy monologues, who's talking about his friend, Jack, Jack Billingsley. Yes. I don't think anybody would make up the name Jack Billingsley for an imaginary friend, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It very much feels like um, a town that time forgot or a place that, you know, mm-hmm is sort of a holdover or like, uh, you know, one of those snow globes, except it's a drought, basically. Like there's no water. Everyone is drinking alcohol, which is making it more and more, you know, um, deader, essentially. Yeah, we need a good sprinkling of rain to kind of clear everything up and yes. make some green because there really isn't. You brought up the fact that you really don't see green and that was such a good observation. They do kind of pull color out of this movie. It's very desaturated, like Mm. even with the wardrobe they're going for, it's kind of drab and kind of everybody looks like, you know, tired. They feel like castaways on an island somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And even um, like the dialogue when this kidnap plot goes off, like the little kid acts nothing like you would expect a little kid in 1990 to act. I mean, it's kind of like he's from Leave It to Beaver time, essentially. And, you know, it works. His little friend that he picks up. Yes. Oh, I love that. Yeah, exactly. You know, his little friend that he picks up as a. He's like a tough guy from the fifties. That that yes. little guy he picks up and he starts talking to him. It's the wrong kid, you know. And yeah. it's it's really it works somehow, even though it's sort of you wouldn't think that it it would. But I think that's down oh. to the actors too. Jason Patrick is very is, good. Mm-hmm. I would listen to him read anything. I feel like his voice is just really wonderful, um, and his presence. He's got that kind of. Um, lazy eye weirdness, you yes, know, just like you don't know yeah. where he's coming from. Um, Absolutely, yeah. it's funny. I read that he's Jason Miller's son and Jackie Gleason's grandson. I um, did not know that. Wow. No, I, I, that was fascinating. He very like assiduously. Um, it was very clear he never wanted to trade on those names, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, but you know, so he kept, but he kind of comes from. Um, show business royalty yeah good characters essentially and he's good at bringing characters to life speaking of characters i really loved uh george dickerson as josh goldman who again feels like an old-timey character um this guy that you meet in the diner and right away he knows something's off there were a couple moments in the movie i remember when i first saw this where i was like is he a figment of Jason Patrick's imagination, but then later it pays off where you're like, oh, I guess Rachel Ward off camera had a conversation with him on the phone. Um, right. So, but I was wondering if, like, maybe in a different version of the script or something, if that was going to be that kind of thing. But I thought Dickerson was really good. Bruce Dern is always uh, he kind of he, he was very in, yeah, and just yeah, uh, he's he's very muted for. For Bruce Dern, I just had the thought that you know some some uh, actors chew scenery. Bruce Dern chews other actors when you <laughs> watch him. He you know he has that thing where he can just get on to people and just make their lives a living hell while you yeah. watch. Uh, but it, but there's less of that here. He's very intense because he's Bruce Dern. Um, but I think um, once again, in keeping with that, these are people sort of washed around by life. They don't have any particular focus or you know any uh, any um real agenda other than they're vaguely going to kidnap a kid and try to make some money you know it's and it's it's very much on key with the with the rest that with rachel ward's character um and she was wonderful in this um you know too i you know once again reading about these people's was fascinating um she's actually a descendant of royalty which i I did not oh wow yeah, she's you know she come from some British aristocracy, but um, made her career mostly in Australia, mm-hmm. um, where she yes Thornburns, hello, yeah. right, exactly, yeah, yeah. and uh, and again does directing, yeah. yeah. When I was yes. watching this, I was realizing um, when I was looking up the films, against all odds, you have Jeff Bridges as a bearded himbo or kind of like scruffy, and in this you have <laughs> Jason Patrick, and so this could be a total double feature of, you know, like sexy bearded himbo meets Femme yes. Fatale, Rachel Ward, essentially. But no, she is really good. She's playing a difficult role because mm. she isn't a traditional Femme Fatale. You actually get a sense that she is a good woman. She's just in a bad situation. 
doesn't really know what to do with her life. But no, you brought up a good point. Bruce Dern can uh, dominate very well. But what I love about it is when I say he takes over, when he walks in, he's like sizing up Patrick right away. You know that something is off, but he's also the type of guy, the character he's playing where he thinks he's a lot smarter than he actually is. Like this plan is not much of a plan. It doesn't fully make sense. And uh, (laughs) like, you're not sure when this plan started or what the dynamic is with Rachel Ward, but yeah, it's, it's it's very much about that than it is these people. Yeah, absolutely. It's very much. You can imagine a a bar flies vague plan to get rich when there's money around They're near Palm (laughs) Springs. There's money out there. How can we get some of it? And the rest of it is just, yeah, it's just uh, a wish that they're they're somehow going to end up better off than they are, which, you know, it's classic noir. So, you know, that ain't going to happen, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, our next film marks the auspicious directorial debut of Danny Boyle the screenwriting debut of John Hodge, and along with the film Being Human, which was also released in the year of 1994, the feature debut of actor Ewan McGregor. I'm talking, of course, about Shallow Grave, a pitch black sardonic crime film with shocking moments of humor to punctuate the goings on. The movie stars McGregor, Christopher Eccleston, and Carrie Fox as a trio of flatmates in Scotland who decide to dismember and bury their brand new enigmatic tenant after he moves in and suddenly dies, leaving behind a suitcase full of money. A karmic cautionary tale, this stylishly made thriller was the most commercially successful British film in 1995, which is when it opened in cinemas there. And it helped usher in renewed excitement for UK film, which again would get a strong helping hand from Danny Boyle, John Hodge, and Ewan McGregor two years later with Train Spotting, which took the world by storm. But back to Shallow Grave, Dennis, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, once again, a film that I I really loved uh, the moment I saw it. Not super successful in the States. I was fascinated by that. Oh, um, because it's to me, it's like such a little jewel of a film where all, once again, all the elements really, really work together, you know, well, the, um, <laughs> the, uh, one of the things that's fascinating that, uh, that I heard in the uh, commentary was that the bankable star when they made this was Carrie Fox. Um, that's she has come off the of, Jane Campion, right? Um, yeah. She had been an angel angel at my table, yeah. which is still lovely. You can see it anytime on Criterion. It's, yes. a, it's a wonderful, beautiful, beautifully shot film. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and also you say that the, if you watch that movie, that, um, that kind of uncertainty and, you know, self-doubt um, tentativeness that she, that Carrie Fox does so incredibly well in angel at my table, she does, plays with that here as well. It's a slightly different take on it um, because she's got more agency, you know, here than in, in, in some of Angel at My Table. But um, the three actors are, are fantastic. Ewan McGregor, once again, he's so pretty, you know, he just kind of sparkles and he's yeah. so such a horrible human being. Um, yeah, uh, I know these characters. It's interesting because, you know, for the first, from the first moment it starts, this is just misanthropic people run amok. 
Like they are um, bringing new possible tenants in mainly to interview and make fun of them or like to turn the tables all of a sudden in an interview. I mean, it's horrible. It is kind of nice later when there's a little comeuppance for how, yes. much, how much of an asshole they are, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think that might have been part of it in America. You know, characters this unlikable, you want to maybe see a payoff. Cohen's do it very well. They walk a nice fine line of yes. sort of poking fun um, with nihilism and stuff. But there is nothing to redeem these people. Like even when like there's a love triangle or a lust triangle, or you think there is, but they're kind mm -hmm. of using each other. And then yeah. when that pays off, like you're not even involved in it. You just know they're playing each other. I mean, this goes there. Yeah. 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 It's it, the, uh, the character is all perfect. Christopher Eccleston. I've always loved yeah. him. He, he was in a, a couple seasons of cracker, the, um, Robbie Coltrane TV I show. I love that series. So it's good. great. Tough to even like see it now, but it was it so is. good. Yeah. Uh, one of the best shows of all time, I think. Yeah. And he, and he did, you know, very much that same, like a wrapped a little too tight. Christopher Eccleston, um, very much by the book, not liking any of the, you know, anything mm -hmm. that kind of goes outside of the lines, which you can see the germ of here for sure, as somebody who is absolutely not constituted to be involved in, you know, what, what you and McGregor kind of blithely proposes, they're going to deal with all of this, I and know. it has horrible ramifications that they're not ready for. Yes. Yeah. He is like the least despicable of the three, uh, the Eccleston character. But but even that, I mean, he's willing to be pushed when push comes to shove because we actually think he he really does like the Carrie Fox character. But yeah, my goodness. And with you and McGregor, it's funny when I was watching this last week, a friend called me who is an actor and he's like, what are you watching? And so I told him and uh, he's like, hi, you know, I've never seen that. And I said, it's dark, Ewan from like the 90s when he was taking it's not hollywood ewan it's yeah. the dark like he was taking chances back in the mm. 90s like this and velvet gold mine and train, train yeah yeah when you take a look at some of these movies um you know it's it's amazing that after watching some of these you had someone like George Lucas go, well, he's going to be in Star Wars. But I like that about <laughs> Lucas, that he was just like, hey, I like this twisted uh, Scottish guy, basically. But yes, um, you know, it's yeah, he is really he, good here. Yeah. One of the things they there's a, uh, just some fantastic um, character actors who will go on to do yes. a lot of things. Peter Mullen has that wordless role. I love Peter Mullen. I mm -hmm. always dreamed that he would play a part in a, uh, you know, in a, a book adaptation of mine. You know what I mean? I just love him to death. He did. He directed a movie called Neds that not a lot of people saw. I remember one, that. Yes. Oh, it's a devastating last scene. Like incredible. His, mm -hmm. he clearly uh, is very much in touch with his, you know, the way he grew up. Uh, you know, the neighborhoods he grew up in, the sort of violence and all and what that means. But but Ken Stott is in it as, you know, the, the character who plays Balin in the, uh, uh, the Hobbit movies. Um, Gary Lewis, who's Billy Elliot's dad, has like two seconds. These people are like two seconds on screen and they're yeah. all amazing. Every single one of them is incredible. Um, yeah, they really are. It is, you know, and the just the sheer audacity and how it's put together, the cinematography, the cuts, like you can really tell you're dealing with a filmmaker who has just is operating on a different level visually 
than we usually see. I mean, it's like um, one of my film professors would call it, you know, kid in a candy store kind of uh, style of filmmaking. Guy Ritchie did that at the beginning of Lockstock, where they're just kind of playing with the camera and editing and seeing what they can do. And you get a sense of that with this. Like, there's some weird experimentation that they're doing with um, characters in body bags and things that are uh, pulling off. Like, this isn't maybe one to watch before bed if you've never seen it before. Like, it's twisted. But uh, it definitely showed you a little bit. And then the doll on the floor, which kind of pays off later with train spotting. So I thought, boy, there's some weirdness about Boyle, but he's a consummate filmmaker right away. Yeah. He, um, uh, it's <laughs> that apartment, which it, yes. if you've ever lived in an apartment, you, you just love automatically. Uh, it has like its own Pinterest page. <laughs> it does. Yeah, it's the most um, just artistic uh, apartment and the weird things that happen with the, the holes yeah. that are coming through. <laughs> They built it. I, I, uh, once again, the, the commentary, uh, Danny Boy was saying that they spent like three quarters of their budget building that apartment, which oh my God. You, you can you see can it's see. incredible. Uh, yeah. And the little touches like uh, there's art on the wall for two seconds that they they had. To, they I guess it was something Danny Boyle really loved by a Scottish artist. And it came with his own security team. Like the the yeah oh, the painting wow. which you see for two seconds, but it's 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 pretty cool and evocative. But to make that decision and invest in that, he, you know, yeah. he's clearly somebody who is willing to do that stuff to push that in the directions he wants to go. That's really cool because you you see interviews with people like Scorsese where they're talking about you know scenes in museums and the paintings that they have to use are like fakes or you know lookalikes that are different enough that it's okay to use but nope Boyle got his own security team for this that that's great I love that right away he's like no we need this work of art yeah so cool yeah yeah uh yeah it's a good one well lastly we have the feature debut of writer director Paul Thomas Anderson with the expansion of his short film Cigarettes and Coffee Originally titled Sydney, but released in 1996 to Anderson's chagrin as Hard Eight, which he was jokingly saying was like a Cinemax title. The film stars Philip Baker Hall as an aging gambler with a mysterious past named Sydney, after or in tribute to Sydney and Midnight Run, played by Philip Baker Hall. But here he takes a homeless man, played by John C. Riley, under his wing and shows him the ropes in Reno. Once they get involved with a cocktail waitress, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, who moonlights as a prostitute, and each become drawn to a different side of this woman, complications arise, their dynamic is threatened as people make bad decisions, as they often do in crime movies. A fascinating chamber piece and a character study. I've always had a soft spot for this one and was very glad to have an excuse to revisit it after so long. So what is your take on Sydney or Hard Eight? Uh, it, it's it's wonderful, too. It's You, you get, very much get that sense that this is a, a really talented director at the beginning of his career. Yes. Um, he's starting to, you know, he's doing some things that you see much more of in... Um, Boogie Nights and subsequent films, the tracking shots that wander and things mm-hmm. like that. You see those little signatures. Um, and Philip Baker Hall is just one of those guys. He's just fantastic. Yes. He's got that sort of Bogart, you know, uh, old weathered hardness about him mm-hmm. um, that uh, not a lot of character actors 
you know, really have. And uh, John C. Riley is is so kind of sweetly lost. He's you know he's yeah, just um, so guileless. Yeah. One of the things I remember in rewatching it, it just like really came back to me. Remembering it for the first time, I saw it. At one point, they're talking in a in the hotel room, um, Philip Baker Hall and John C. Riley. And Riley does this thing where he he throws the Velcro on his sneakers. He puts them up on the bed and then very deliberately pulls the Velcro in place. And there's something so like um, geeky 13 year old boy about that, you know, yeah. that he just really emphasizes his relative inexperience and immaturity, you know, to you know, to, to the sophistication and, you know, tired worldliness of, uh, of Philip Baker Hall, Sydney. Um, I also think too, that um, in the stuff I read, I think Gwyneth Paltrow gets short shrift. I, do too. I, I thought she did a fantastic job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I heard somebody refer to her as a, like a hooker with a heart of gold character, which she is absolutely not no. in this mm-hmm. film. You know, she's somebody who's been through, clearly been through a lot of terrible stuff trying to figure out how to survive and not tremendously mm-hmm. successfully. Um, but, you know, she gets to uh, to really display that character and all the things that she's, you know, worked out about that, that character. Um, you yeah, know, she's sort of remember, pulling at her lip. And, yeah, I remember an interview with um, Paul Thomas Anderson where he said a lot of that came right from Gwyneth where she was thinking, um, you know, after the scene, I think where she comes out of somebody's hotel room and gets caught, um, she kind of overdid her uh, lipstick, like it was smeary and like obviously uh, came up with like a razor burn idea and we see her pulling on her lip, um, you know, and so these little details about what this woman's life was like and um, having to sort of flirt with tables of drunks because otherwise she's seen as a cocktail waitress who's being unfriendly kind of like you know that old you know why aren't you smiling thing that that men do or horrible uh stereotypes of men do basically so yeah she is very good here i read um a review that roger ebert wrote where he was complimenting the dialogue and he was saying what was so good about paul thomas anderson is i mean not everybody sounds the same and it's all very specific like Philip Baker Hall uh, only says what he means and he only talks when he has to. John C. Riley is kind of the sweet guyless. He says what he hopes will happen or he's trying to be optimistic or a people pleaser. Um, and Jimmy, as I believe was, what's the name, Jimmy? I'm kind of remembering uh, Samuel Jackson's character. Oh, right. Um, yeah. Yes. Was somebody who says things that may or may not be true or he's trying to project a certain thing. And um, I can't remember what the summation was about the Gwyneth character, but I mean, just going from my own um, thoughts, watching the movie, you can tell she is someone who is trying to figure it out and also present a certain side of herself at whatever time and not be Mm. judged. And there's something really um, interesting about that. And I think uh, very true for all of these different people. Yeah. yeah, it was fun to watch um, the uh, cigarettes and coffee short. Uh, yeah. I, I can only find a pretty crappy print of it, but um, that the opening lines of dialogue where it's still the Sydney character. Clearly, you can see how this, you know, heartache grew right out of that that short um, where he has this, you know, the speech that he gives about um, you start with a coffee and a cigarette and you've got to pour the coffee 
and light your cigarette, and then we can talk about whatever's bothering you. Um, and uh, the thing I, I saw, one of his friends said to him, that's your dad, that's your father. You know, that mm-hmm. is absolutely um, Paul Thomas Anderson's dad in that role. And, and that's the way um, a lot of this feels is that it's, um, uh, you know, that Sidney is very much this father figure and everybody wants his approval and attention yes. mm-hmm. even even samuel L. jackson he does you get He's the feeling impress him yeah exactly right you you get that feeling that if if uh, philip baker of sydney had shown him respect mm-hmm. whether he deserved it or not you know in the way that a child you know wants that you know from a dad um that it might have gone differently that he might have sort of been able to bring him into his orbit or whatever but that you know clearly was not how that was supposed to go um you know, but you, you absolutely see that. And it's kind of fascinating to think about what's true about um, Anderson and his life and how how he sort of distorts that and brings it onto a screen. Uh, yeah. Uh, another a- Anderson, um, I think it was Matt Solers. I wrote about um, Wes Anderson, something like Bad Dads as part of a, a title of something that he analyzed for Wes Anderson. But the same could be true for Paul Thomas Anderson, he has so many difficult father-son dynamics that go throughout his whole filmography. I just re-watched um, There Will Be Blood, which turns 15 this year, which is crazy uh, because that's my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie. But oh, it's an amazing I mean, film. Yeah, yeah, I was re-watching that. That's another one with the father-son. But yeah, it's been there from the beginning, just sort of figuring out these um, mentor-mentee or father-son dynamics. And you do see that with um, Samuel L. Jackson, just the company of actors to how well he works with actors. He is an Altman guy and you can really see that uh, he loves uh, filling his um, cast with just talent, uh, even in tiny roles like Philip Seymour Hoffman oh, yeah. just dominates. He's on screen. Yeah. for I think I joked in a tweet that it was five minutes, but I believe it's only like three minutes and 50 seconds. Like he's sure. barely in it. And uh, he's when he's there, you forget everything else in the movie. You forget anyone else's name. Like he yes. is just on a roll. He's got like this mullet type hair thing going on. Yes. He's lighting yeah. a cigarette. He's singing. He's his job is to like antagonize uh, Philip Baker Hall or get under his skin. And boy, does he ever! And yeah. so it's cool to see um, these people in early collaborations with Anderson that he's going to use later because he does use some of these sides of these people again, like yes. the sweetness of John C. Riley comes back in uh, Magnolia in officer Jim. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so, and uh, you know, kind of that misguided uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman doesn't quite fit in and that's boogie nights, you know? Yeah, right. So, yeah. uh, I, um, in listening to um, uh, Philip Baker Hall, he was saying that uh, Anderson has maintains eye contact he sometimes is like crawling under the camera apparently like like feet away he maintains eye contact with the actors at least you know he did on on this and Philip Baker Hall saying about how unnerving that is you know you're used to directors who are watching this on a screen somewhere yeah Yeah, exactly who are not even sort of present who so they set the machinery in motion and there you Mm -hmm. go you know but uh, I can imagine if you were an actor, especially used to uh, man, what I imagine the conventions of this form, there he is looking at you in the eye while you're delivering, you know, his dialogue, you know, and how 
what that would do to your performance if you were feeding off of it or really intimidated by it. Yeah, that would be unnerving. But at the same time, that might explain uh, the spark a little bit. And it could be like a Sydney situation where they're all trying to please uh, Father Anderson, essentially. (laughs) Yeah, that's so funny. I didn't know that. Wow. (laughs) And I just I love the last image i think everybody who sees this remembers that the blood on the cuff and mm-hmm. pulling the sleeve down but and of course it's such a wonderful um you know sort of picture of everything you've seen in the movie basically yeah. he's you know you've got blood on you and you're going to try to ignore it or you know or yeah. minimize it but it's there and it's going to affect how everything else plays out for you you know yeah, it's a good way to bring in the theme, everything you just said, but also come full circle with the coffee shop. Yeah, it is right. perfect. It's surprisingly moving, too, which you don't often yes. get in uh, crime movies. Sometimes they're trying to be cool or they're just dark. Like, you know, you're not really moved in shallow grave. I mean, it's still entertaining, but this right. one does have emotional depth. Yeah. 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 Very much so. It's, yeah, it's, it's, I'm, you know, trying to think of other films that, that have that. And it's really, it's difficult. And Mm -hmm. a lot of, um, a lot of films that, uh, you know, kind of operate in these, you know, bigger crime, it's tough to get that connection where you really feel the emotional consequences of what you're seeing on there. But Heart Aid is definitely that, that film, um, you know, I think more so than the others. Yes, absolutely. Well, I know there were several other movies that you had listed that you thought would fit the topic well. So for anyone listening who would love to check out more excellent 90s crime movies that are a bit more unique or off the beaten path of what's expected for the genre, what would you recommend? Yeah, I, I think um, you mentioned, you know, one false move is obviously um, a real yeah. like just it, you know, especially for people from my world from other crime writers we all love that that's another movie with people sort of at the beginning of their careers bill paxton and um and billy um bob thornton yeah uh, billy bob thornton yeah exactly um uh the you know the grifters another jim thompson adaptation fantastic it's just a smaller movie called fresh um uh, jordan harper is obsessed with that yeah yeah, it's fantastic um, movie. Once again, a small film that people generally kind of don't remember, but it it, it was amazing. Um, Red Rock West you mentioned, which is another one that's a great little film that I think people who love noir still kind of you know it, reference that you know. Um, uh, Heavenly Creatures, which is oh an, such a good one. Oh my gosh, from New Zealand um, with Melanie Liskey, who's kind of back big on the screen now, which is wonderful to see. I love um, her. Yeah, yeah, she's so wonderful. Um, Young Poisoner's Handbook. This is a strange one. It's a true crime. It's about a, a true story of a young uh, guy who was poisoning uh, his family members and coworkers and stuff in Britain in the '60s. And it's it's very dark, but it's also just really well done, really well executed. Um, City of Industry, that's one that I, I absolutely love. You know, these are the films that I never expect anybody to watch these things that love them like I do, you know what I mean? But yeah. it, that's a really good, um, City of Industry has that sort of feeling like the killing or, you know, that kind of small asphalt jungle, you know, feel of cool. tough guys, you know, trying to button heads over, you know, um, the execution of a crime. And um, it, Harvey Keitel is the, totally the engine 
you know, in that film. Um, Laws of Gravity, which is another one with Peter Green at the beginning of his career. Um, uh, and Copland was another 90s oh, film. Oh, such a good film. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. It, I Once again, another film that frequently doesn't get, get the respect, I think, that you would imagine because of um, Sliced Alone. But I think he's, it's the best thing he ever did. I think it might be his best performance. Yes, I agree with you. Wow. Yeah, a lot of good movies that you mentioned there. Dennis, I want to thank you so much for doing this. I learned a lot. I kind of want to read some Williford books now, so I'm very excited. And uh, rewatch City of Industry, which I know I saw, but probably in the 90s, so it's been too long. But thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. It's, It's been a blast. Yeah, I really enjoyed it and I love your show and um, love to do it again sometime. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Uh, next time you come up with an idea or more movies you want to discuss, just let me know. Thank you Sounds very good. much. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.